This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. This is the Book Riot Podcast, weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and we're talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 335, recording on Saturday, October 19th. 2019. It's Saturday morning. We've already had technical problems. We're getting frustrated. It's early. <laughs> We're going to talk about books now, I guess. I'm going to unplug myself and plug it back in, I guess. <laughs> can, can we just do that bl- to bl- humans? Just like just like slap your face a little and splash <laughs> your water on your face. Blow on the cartridge. Blow into the microphone. Blow on the cartridge. Yeah. Anyway, I'm drinking water. I'm not even. Th- I'm not even remembering on the podcast now. Let's do this. We're gonna do a sponsor first. Give ourselves just a minute to wake up, and then do some follow up and get out of here. Okay, here's a sponsor. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Cool. So here, this is, we've actually recorded this intro once already, so we're going we're gonna to get it right this time, meaning maybe it'll actually be recorded. But the follow-up is um, what it, what apparently is the nation's largest digital circulating library, the King County Library System in Washington, has decided it will no longer purchase embargoed ebook titles from Macmillan, who is doing this ebook audiobook throttling program. Um, despite months of discussion and advocacy, Macmillan continues to position it to embargo multiple copies of ebooks. Therefore, effective November 1st, the KCLS will no longer purchase ebooks from Macmillan. Instead, we will divert our ebook funds to those publishers who are willing to sell to us. Um, so, a couple things on this. One, meta story. If I'm Macmillan, it, we, you and I have talked about it. We've gotten a lot of feedback, both agreeing and disagreeing with us vehemently on both sides. That we're, basically, our position is this seems okay, not the huge deal. Prefer if it were otherwise, but I can see how. This might make sense. There's some data we don't know. Do libraries take sales? Do they add to sales? We don't know. Macmillan wants to try um, basically keeping some scarcity around its front list titles, see if it can sell some more books, essentially. Philosophically, I think I'm okay with that on the whole. But this sort of situation, and um, I saw a piece about how there was an op-ed in the Minneapolis Star Tribune urging the Minneapolis public library system to boycott or otherwise leverage what it could against Macmillan. It feels like the worm is terming enough that whatever marginal value you are going to get from this program from Macmillan is going to be sucked up in ill will. That's what it's feeling like to me right at this particular moment. Rebecca, what do you think about that? I agree with that. I think that I have a lot of questions about the actual like dollars math of this right. that it's I think it's meaningful first of all that this is the largest digital circulating library in the country like they're they are moving out to lead the charge here. I wonder what that what their boycott equates to in terms of lost mm-hmm. dollars for Macmillan. Um, I would kind of guess that just this library alone in the grand scheme of dollars that Macmillan makes in a year um, does not make a significant difference. Um, but a bunch of libraries boycotting Macmillan's ebooks would, I think, make a significant difference. And even if the dollars did not make that much of a difference, even if Macmillan could be like, okay, fine, libraries, you just won't have our ebooks, right. the, the public relations problem, like the optics of it are just not great um, and probably not worth the trouble at this point. Um, right. It will be, I think it'll be interesting. I'm sure we won't get to have many of the details about how this goes down or if Macmillan um, reverses course, any statements about how or why. But um, the stuff I would love to know is like, you know, how much money does this equate to for this um, top library, the King County Washington library Mm -hmm. system? Um, If every library in the country stopped buying Macmillan eBooks, what does that do to Macmillan's bottom line and really like how far are they willing to take this? Um, So I think the question now is like, 
if I were their public relations people, I would be like, you guys, this is not worth it. Um, yeah. So the question I think is kind of like, how long will it take McMillan to respond or to change course if they're going to change course? If they're not, like, will we get a doubling down quickly? Um, some kind of statement of like, all right, fine, go your own way. Um, but I think that would be that would be ill-advised for um, for optics reasons and also for reasons of publishers are supposed to value the public library system and place a kind of priority on contributing to the literacy of the population. Um, and if you're like, okay, cool, we just won't have our eBooks in your systems, mm -hmm. uh, then you are limiting access in some ways that publishers like to give a lot of at least lip service to. So I guess there's an opportunity here to decide what priorities are and to demonstrate those priorities by making, by making mm -hmm. a change. But um, I don't know. I think at this point I'm rooting for Macmillan to change course. Um, yeah. And also I think it would be wise for them to change course. Yeah. Yeah, at this point, it feels a little bit like um, if you could, if if the change could be enacted without too much blowback or people even noticing, maybe it was worth the experiment to try. But at this point, it feels like maybe you're being penny wise and pound foolish. Like mm -hmm. the meta thing is going to be more important than whatever marginal value you're going to get from increased ebook sales in the first twelve weeks uh, of being released. Um, it's really, it's really hard to know um, exactly at what point you, the, the worm turns against Macmillan because they still have, like I said in the last episode or the episode before, some security through obscurity. Like, do people really know what a Macmillan title is when they're going mm -hmm. to check it out? Like, are, are people doing that? Um, that the leverage that libraries have in the public consciousness. I haven't seen it being. I haven't seen it be brought to bear quite like this, or it seems to be being brought to bear quite like this in a long time. Maybe since we've been doing this show, um, where you're seeing large libraries taking direct action against a publisher. Maybe it's because things haven't changed. We haven't seen a market mm. change quite like this before. Um, but we've seen some changes about licensing, and there's been grumblings about licensing. Maybe this is one of those situations where. The action is so specific and understandable, like it's not about licensing and how many checkouts you get, that people can understand, wait, this seems like a screw job for libraries um, and for their patrons for reasons that people don't understand. And Macmillan just has a tough sell. It's just a very difficult yeah. sell at this point. I think that's a really important point that this is a change, like an industry sort of back end change that's easy to explain to patrons about why it's a problem because it will directly mm -hmm. affect patrons. And if I were these libraries, I would be thinking about doing something like still making Macmillan titles searchable in my online catalogs, but delivering them with a pop-up that explains this ebook is not available to you because right. Macmillan, you know, like because Macmillan has done this thing, the publisher has done this thing. Um, it's not, we don't believe it's in your best interest um, for us to capitulate to this policy change. So here's the deal. And to try to sort of mobilize their communities as well. It's interesting too. I think um, I was talking to someone this week in New York about this, like no, no institution that I can think of has a higher, what's that thing? Uh, Q rating that that the sort mm -hmm. of rating you you, you described like what how people the affinity uh, people feel for a brand or a celebrity or a politician or an institution. No one has a higher Q rating than the of uh, the public library. I can't imagine like right just as the a most beloved celebrity out there. I think the <laughs> library still wins just as mm -hmm. so. I do think what, whatever the the economies are for libraries and publishers that. Being a supporter of the public library probably is best thought of as table stakes to be a publisher in America because no one knows who you are. No one cares about publishers. I don't. Th I really don't think no one no. has. Mm -mm. Independent bookstores, libraries, and schools in the book universe, and then authors maybe after that are the things that readers have some. I don't know moral and emotional investment in. I don't think they have outside of like some genre things that people have an affinity for. I don't think. On the whole, no one really cares about Macmillan or yeah, a Random House or Simon. I Schuster. agree. Yeah, there's some. I think readers have some attachments to maybe some of the smaller independent publishers that do very specific things, and fans yeah. of those very specific things can recognize like the colophon from that publisher or that imprint, especially if the indie bookstores are 
like putting them all together in ways that, um, that some bookstores do. But yeah, like as, uh, as sympathies go, I think very few people just in rank and file readership who use public libraries are going to hear this story and come down on the side of the publisher, no. as opposed to coming down in favor of, of libraries and of the reading public and of all the things that the library stands for, which um, go towards, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> go towards that Q rating as you're talking about, like, it's just a, it's just a tough case to mm-hmm. come out on top if you're a giant publisher making bajillions of dollars and you're fighting the like persistently underfunded public library. <laughs> yeah, um, I guess the related note I asked um, people that would know or just their opinion for, you know, we know that Audible original mm-hmm. titles do not aren't available as audiobooks through digital lending services, though apparently some of the CDs are, which, mm. okay whatever. I, I don't really count <laughs> right. that. I mean, technically, but, um, and, uh, and we were wondering, like, you know, we haven't seen backlash to that practice anywhere at all, really, except for, you know, an individual here or there, especially within our internal Slack when we get frustrated to see that they aren't made available um, to the library public. And I asked, you know, why don't we see the same kind of, or even remotely similar kinds of pushback from the public, from librarians, from library supporters, Basically, the answer boils down to it's Amazon and it feels hopeless, mm. which I totally get. It's too bad, yeah. uh, but I totally get that. Um, and kind of like we said, it's also the case that Audible Originals have never been available um, through audiobook lending services. So you get that endowment effect thing where it feels worse to take something away that's been there rather than to withhold something. Um, and so some of it is the status quo isn't being changed, even though the status quo may be could be worse. Um, I want to make a clarification. Someone was thinking that I was mad that I couldn't get an Audible original through Libby, even though I could get it through, you know, use my membership dollars to, to get it through there. That's not what I was saying. I, you, I, I'm totally willing to pay for the books I want to read to and use the library as kind of a, you know, an infill where I'm not paying top dollar for every book. I'm more upset that people who use a library exclusively because for many different reasons can't get the audiobook. I don't really care myself if I can't get a particular mm-hmm. title on Libby. That it's not available writ large is a thing that I care about too. So apparently I cared about that clarification of many. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> you never know. Today Sometimes you care about things. Distinctions about what we care about. Yeah, I don't know. I, but I guess that mattered to me because um, yeah. look, I can pay for the books I want to read. That's not a problem for me. And I'm really lucky to be able to do that. But not everyone is. Um, and I think the the writer of that email was making the point that uh, yes, that's yeah, that's... a distinction that's maybe worth talking about. It's like I'm not worried about not being able to get ten drugs for free. Um, that's the book. Uh, ten. I, I have private health insurance, so no drugs are free. <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, you know, I'm not sure what to do with this. I have complicated feelings about this one. It's not really follow up, but news this week: the passing of Harold Bloom, um, the venerable. Um, controversial literary critic um, died at age of 95, I think it was. I don't have the the obit right in front of me. A, a, a guy that in today's current environment, it's a rough beat. Culturally, we went to some news, some stories about Harold Bloom's personal conduct come out that I'm not surprised by any uh, Me Too sorts of things. I'll put a link in the show notes there. Harold Bloom was important for me at a, at a time in my life, and when I was in high school trying to figure out how to be someone who cared about books, when my own high school education, my high school instruction wasn't great, and I picked up a copy of his <laughs> arrogantly titled The Western Canon um, <laughs> off a of Barnes & Noble bookshelf, which is sort of breaking down the Western Canon by era and big lists and explanations of why books were important. And it was, to me, a Western literary um, education between two covers. And I read it, and I read a lot of the books that he listed and became part of my own understanding of how the Western canon was put together. And the Western canon's idea was deconstructed for me and by me in my own mind over time. But the thing that I think I'm mourning is not Harold Bloom himself, but the idea of a public intellectual that talks about books in a way that can command some sort of mainstream intellectual discourse. That that tradition seems to me to be gone now, um, for better or worse, I think. 
there was a time when, you know, there's a Lionel Trilling and Jacques Barzun in the Columbia School, um, and these are all white guys, and there's that there's a reason that's the case, and maybe that's part of the problem uh, writ large is these were white guys saying what the Western canon was, so that's people would listen to them for reasons that were political and demographic rather than intellectual and earned. But I don't. I, I, was, I was looking through some lists and looking for ideas. Like I don't think there's anyone to replace Bloom, and there hasn't been for some time. And maybe there shouldn't be. Maybe it should be fragmented and atomized. Um, but I wish there were a public intellectual talking about books in a way that was serious but not scholarly, approachable but not necessarily popular, um, like Bloom did. And, you know, someone like Coates in that mold that talked about books, I guess, is mm-hmm. what I'm thinking about. That was um, the name that I was thinking of as well as an yeah, sort of right. analogy. Um, and so as as people have... As people, I don't know, as the culture has moved on, and maybe this is just a lagging indicator that there isn't someone taking up that place. Um, well, there are, there are, it does seem to me there are people talking about movies and book, uh, movies and TV shows, um, in slight, in, in ways like, you know, Emily Nussbaum's I Like to Watch. Is there a book version of that by a popular mm. critic? That's written for an informed, interested, but not expert audience around books. I guess maybe there are, but they don't. They don't rise to the level of Emily Nussbaum. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, so, do you, does that make any sense, Rebecca? I feel like I'm very it much nasal gazing here for a moment. Yeah, I, I knew this was going to be like interesting and complex mm-hmm. for you because of the sort of connection to Harold Bloom at a pivotal part of your reading life. I had never read him so like in any capacity yeah. um Harold I, I just like missed Harold Bloom entirely in my readerly life um and I think I'm as a person less invested in the idea of like a public intellectual I would like to see like a lot of public intellectuals talking about sure. books in a yeah like in a meaningful give me one I'll take one <laughs> right and I yeah, think right. that yeah. um yeah I think we're in the in-between place right now like um we're not quite like maybe we're in the upside down I don't know um that as like the the statues of these like people these men these old white men that have been authorities for so long as all these statues are falling and me too is still happening and like public voices and public discourse are still like very much i think in a transitional process of like becoming truly intersectional in the way of like lots of people from marginalized backgrounds have access to various platforms. They certainly have access to social media. Those voices are rising, but mainstream, like they don't have full access to the kind of platform that mainstream media provides yet to become Mm -hmm. like the noted public intellectual or one of the noted public intellectuals talking about books. And I think we're moving in that direction. Like um, Roxane Gay is a public thinker. That's a name I had too. Yeah. A a public thinker whose ideas about books I find really interesting. Um, And like she writes Goodreads reviews, you know? So what if we got like a Roxane Gay literary review column or literary criticism or how to think about books column on an ongoing basis and Tanahasi Coates and just like there are many public thinkers that this would be interesting to see. I'd love like a woman, like uh, any other woman <laughs> would be um like Maggie Nelson writing about books would be amazing. Um there are just so I think there's so many opportunities and so many different kinds of experiences that people could bring to bear, um, life experiences and backgrounds um, that they could bring to bear in a way that would make this meaningful. But I do think that the like age of somebody writing about books in a way that is like the one way or like the sort of one perspective is is over. Um, and I think that's a good thing that um I, I think that's a good thing. I think that the diversity of voices is something that benefits readers and that will push publishing forward and push reading culture forward, but that we're not into the place yet. Like we're not on the other side of that mountain yet um, where we have access to a lot of public thinkers who have access to the platforms they would need to get um, to get that writing and thinking about books out there. 
Well, I think Coates or Roxanne Gay, for example, could get a contract to write a big book about books. I just mm-hmm. don't think they're interested in it. I mean, you yeah. know, take Bad Feminist. She's interested in a whole range of culture. Same with Coates. He wants to write about comic books and politics. and mm-hmm. That's fine. That, that's totally fine. And they're professional writers where the academic public intellectual who was focused and really wasn't depending upon their writing career for their income is a different beast, right? They, they get true. to do different yeah. things. So it doesn't need to be anyone that looks or sounds or is interested in the same kinds of Harold Bloom things are, but that has a different kind of intellectual investment into thinking about books and literature writ large, um, I think would be interesting. And, and the, the other thing that's true is that the, the academy that produced the Harold Bloom is no longer the academy that exists. Right. In order to get a job, such as they are, you hyper-specialize in theory is very important. And there's no, basically no reward within the academy for writing a popular book um, that's written for people outside of the academy. People do it and they try. Um, but, you know... And Bloom had many things to recommend him, as almost as many things maybe as to not recommend him. But the seriousness and passion and the readability on the page of reading Bloom on, say, Hamlet or something like that um, mm-hmm. is part of the pleasure that in the academy you are just not trained, rewarded, praised, or groomed to do. So, you know, it's a situation where the culture has moved on, the platform has moved on. And maybe it's maybe it's for the best, maybe it's for the best. Um, but to have a Bloom-like figure who does not have the politics or identity of Bloom, but the command that Bloom, for whatever, for better or worse, held, would be very interesting to me. Like Kakutani was the last of. I mean, I think no critic has emerged to have Kakutani's influence after she mm-hmm. stepped down from the Times. So even the age of the really important reviewer is over at the same... That's the other thing that was brought home to me. Like, well, who's the... I mean, who's the most notable reviewer now of books? Probably Ron Charles in the Washington Post. I mean, Janet Maslin, I think, is the most senior... Um, or, you know, the the name recognition at the Times, Janet Maslin has the most mm-hmm. the clout there, too. Um so I don't know. I mean, like, I guess that's a thing that's just completely gone. And the I think one thing I didn't think about is that the democratization of online discourse wouldn't just mean necessarily that more voices were heard, but then the megaphone voices would also go – wouldn't just be mm-hmm. supplemented but might go away is something I guess I never really thought about. Yeah, until this I think moment. that the the having of the megaphone – lent a sense of authority and like capital L legitimacy um, to mm-hmm. like to Bloom's voice um, to Kakatani's voice. Like, and I think that those are, those are like relatively recognizable names among the reading public. I wonder though, like what percentage and I would bet a lot of dollars that's small of the reading public, like could name a, uh, book critic or would know who Ron Charles was if you just asked who Ron Charles is or Janet Maslin for that matter. Like, um, that this is, this is a part and democratization was a word that was swirling around in my head right before you said it. So I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad that we got there. I, I think to me, this is a thing that's exciting. Um, that, and I think it's a, I just, I think it's a built in byproduct that as, media has democratized the conversation more people have access to platforms and more people have then the ability to get their opinions out there and to share them with other people who are interested who find that to be relevant and useful they build like you sort of earn your authority in a way that not that like bloom and kakutani did not earn their authority but it also was conferred upon them and there's a real like bottom up um motion to the ways that people become noted for their opinions about culture now that I find to be exciting. And I think it holds those 
those public thinkers accountable in a way that's interesting and meaningfully different from um, being the authority sort of coming down from on high to, to talk about, you know, which books are good and which books aren't worth reading and what, what a thing means or doesn't mean. Um, yeah, I like, honestly, I don't know if review sections of newspapers went away. I think I would be fine with her. Um, I'm just making that grimace emoji with my face right now. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, what else to say. Th- I guess that th- th- I, I guess what I the fragmentation also has meant that it's much more. There's there's fewer places in which you can be supported to dedicate your intellectual life to thinking about books, right? Like part of what makes a public intellectual is some of it is is you're right is the being knighted by the Times or the chairmanship or whatever. But some of it is that you have the financial backing of whatever to dedicate your time and attention to something that on its own may not be profitable, right? Well, think of if who's, who's getting a book contract right now to write a book like the Western canon, like a big, long, difficult book about literature, or not difficult, but like serious book about literature, who's getting the contract for that? Um, you can write about books in a lot of different ways now. Do any of them – Is it? are there enough dimes to add up to the dollar to, to subsidize that kind of work? Because um, I would love to see the Harold Bloom type of treatise by someone who's a much different person than Harold Bloom and take that mm-hmm. for however you want to take it. It's just that spot's got blowed up. You know, that kind of attention and time doesn't seem to be subsidized by anyone at this particular moment. Um, and from my point of view, that's too bad. Maybe I'm, a, maybe I'm an old man myself these days. Um, <laughs> but it, I found myself w- wishing there was space for that kind of work by different kinds of people. Like right, right as it was ready, right as different voices were coming to the fore – um, in a real way that culture was giving space that they hadn't given to before. Right at that moment, the resources for that kind of work disappeared. I think that's what I'm mm-hmm. reacting to. It's mm-hmm. like, God, mm-hmm. right now we needed, you know, the Coates who's um, a Princeton PhD or whatever, or the University of North Carolina, who's doing a, who wants to do a big public work like that. And it seems like that's gone. It seems like right at the moment um, where the baton of – the great critic could have been passed to someone who didn't get a shot before the baton disappeared, which seems like its own kind of injustice, I have to say. Yeah, Um, that's, I understand that. And that, I think that I'm, I'm not sure it's completely over. I think is what I'm trying to say that we may be in still in the transition of like, uh, being in a, like being into or going into a fallow, period, Mm. but that there's, I think it's possible that like the movement is still happening. There's a lot of growth left to occur and that maybe in five or 10 years, there is someone who has like risen out of sort of this current, like sort of on, like the online world feels like the scrum of like everyone has a Mm -hmm. voice and everyone running around to have a voice. And some of those people's voices are elevated by like basically the votes of their readership, the eyeballs that, and the attention that people are willing to give to those opinions Um, that like, there's still time for someone to take this baton. It's just going to like lie on the ground for a while first Um, that there had this, like the motion hasn't been going on that long. The change has still relatively i think Mm. new in the history of media this change is relatively new um that there's not someone standing by ready to take it right now or that media is ready to hand it to or that the academy is ready to hand it to but that like it's very possible that in a more complete or just mature that's the word i want in a more mature version of this movement towards democratization of voice and perspective someone who cared about thinking about books in the way that Harold Bloom did, but comes from a very different perspective, um, could, could get that book deal. Um, Mm -hmm. just, we don't, we just don't have that person yet. Yeah, I guess, I guess, I I guess you're right. It could still happen. I guess what I'm, my brain is saying, I thought maybe it would have already that someone who was Mm -hmm. writing passionately, independently and got picked up and got a following 
would have got got a book contract for something called like the new canon that takes on different genres and different voices and I guess I thought it would happen um already, but it hasn't. So that doesn't mean it can't, it just means it hasn't. Um I think you're right that it probably won't if there is a baton of interest and voice and attention it probably won't happen in the, by the same mechanism that these others mm-hmm. have happened. And if the mechanism doesn't exist yet, doesn't mean it will never exist. Um, that's, that's, I'll get a, that'll be my hopeful note that yeah. you've uh, provided me on this uh, gray, rainy Saturday morning here in the <laughs> Pacific Northwest. All right, I spent, sorry, I spent longer on that than I, than I meant to, but uh, thanks for uh, talking through that with me. Let's do another sponsor and get on to some no- other news. Okay, the bi- I mean, the big book news this week is the Booker Prize was awarded. And like all awards these days, apparently, you can't just <laughs> give an award and people and it's fine. And you did it fine and it's cool. And you have to you have to you have to turn the knife a little bit with this. So you probably if you're listening to the show, you probably heard that the Booker Prize decided to do a double award this year. Um of course the first black female winner Bernardine Evaristo has to share the prize. Uh, the $50,000 prize with Margaret Atwood, who needs it less than possibly anybody else who could be winning this wars right now. Basically, it's it's the first time that's been shared, and apparently it was unanimous. A unanimous tie is a very weird idea to me. That's um, super weird. That after five hours of deliberation, that The Handmaid's Tale and Evaristo's polyphonic novel Girl, Woman, Other would share the award. Um... Yeah, I don't know about this. I mean, look, I don't think we need to talk about this. We did a whole episode on the Testaments and our reservations <clears throat> about the book. <laughs> so I guess I'm not that interested in whether it's worthy or not. But what a terrible look for the Booker Prize. This Am I is, wrong about this? We haven't yeah, talked about this no, at because I, I knew we would get to it here. Yeah, this is, I think, a travesty um, and also a real failure. Wow, travesty. To con- okay, tell me about that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. First, because I don't think that the Testaments is a book worthy of a major award like this. And we don't need to go into the details. You're right, because we talked about it for an hour and a half Mm -hmm. on a previous episode. Um, But this is all like these book awards are supposed to be about awarding great work and also bringing attention to writers that the prize committees, you know, think need to be recognized and deserve to be more widely recognized read. Um, or at least that is a known outcome of winning one of these prizes is that like people who didn't know your name before now might know your name because you have won a major literary prize. That the first black woman to win the Booker has to share it, first of all, is ridiculous. Um, that they gave the double award and that the double award meant splitting the award money is ridiculous like if you are insistent on awarding two people i think a necessary condition of that would be like that you find a way that each person gets the full award um not like congratulations you've just hit the like biggest milestone of your career and also you only get half of it Um, Mm -hmm. and just really shows a lack of either a lack of awareness of how this was going to come off or a lack of caring about how it was going to come off. Like the Testaments is not being widely praised as an amazing work of literature, regardless of what you were, Mm. or where, where you and I came down on it. And it's like, so something is going on here with the desire to give this award to Margaret Atwood. Um, I don't, I just don't think it's fair that, I don't think it's fair or right that Bernadine Evaristo has to share this moment that should be about um, pure, that should be like purely about elevating and recognizing the work that she has done. Um, And it matters that she's a black woman and it matters that she's the first black woman to have won this prize. And she doesn't even get to have that moment. And also Mm -hmm. now she has to be trotted around to every media outlet that covers books. And she has to be generous about it, about, you know, how, what a, what a delight it is that um, she gets to share the stage with Margaret Atwood. And she has to say generous things about like, well, of course I would have loved the whole 50,000 pounds, but you know, but it's really okay. It's not really okay. 
okay, but she's not there. Like there's no space in the public discourse about this for her to just be mad about it. Like she could just mm-hmm. be mad about it. I hope in the privacy of her heart, she's allowing herself to be angry about this. Like you're, she's certainly entitled to it, but there's nothing to be gained from expressing that publicly. And so now she has to do this whole like, the whole thing of like being gracious. Um, and mm-hmm. that's, it's just deeply not cool. Um, I like groaned out loud when I read the headline last week or earlier this week about that the booker was split and that it was split between anyone and Margaret Atwood for this book. Like I, I have enjoyed Margaret Atwood in the past, but I just don't think the Testaments is worthy of the award period. But that like, mm-hmm elevating the testaments to the level of the kind of work that Evaristo is doing and then making Evaristo share the spotlight and the money and the recognition with Margaret Atwood is just, it's just, I do, I do think it's a travesty. I think this was a bad call all the way around. I think they owe her an apology. The rules even said that it could not be divided. So yeah. I don't know, I guess you can just do it. Change them. Um, you can just change the uh, rules. <laughs> That it's not a rule then, right? Do I right. not understand what a rule is? If you can just, it's a guideline, a suggestion, uh, maybe, maybe Ada. Um, let's talk about Evaristo because I think that's the, as you alluded to, one of the terrible consequences. The story is now the split, not either of the women right. getting the award. Really, Evaristo becomes the first black woman and the first black British writer to win the Booker since it was launched in 1969. She said after the announcement, "I hope that honor doesn't last too long." Um, so um, she's been. This is her eighth novel, and um, we black. Here's a quote from her: "We black British women know that if we don't write ourselves into literature, no one else will." Um, yeah, it's it's really it's a really bad look. I mean, if it was tied with two, I mean, I don't know. I was trying to think of in which situation would a tie feel. But some of it is the power differential, right, between Atwood and this mm-hmm. writer that I had heard of but never read anything by, just to give my own priors put on the table. There's a power differential. There's an identity differential. There's the quality of the the work question, just all along the watchtower. It seems like no no one thought that if it's going to be a tie, can we just let the first black woman get all the shine for this one? I mean, did, 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 I wonder if that even entered the equation when they were talking about it. Do you think? Do you think anyone said, you know, you guys, ladies, gentlemen, whoever's in the room, do you maybe we should just if it's a tie, let's have the tie go to the base runner here, the first black woman. I that that's I feel like that's where I, I wanted I want the conversation to go around this is like how did it not occur to someone? And if it did, how did they still come to the decision I think is is really really well, interesting. Like- yeah, I think the best case scenario here is that it didn't occur to them what a bad look this might be, because the worst case is that it did occur and they decided they didn't care. Mm-hmm. And that your best case is that you were ignorant is not awesome. It's yeah. and also like that the rule <laughs> I can't get over that the rules state it could not be split, but that they magically found a way to split it. Like mm-hmm. it's I think this is this would be different if they had to split the award it w- it could have been different and felt less bad on in some other situations like if the other book also seemed worthy first of all mm. um if mm. the other writer would have benefited from the recognition like margaret atwood does not need another prize um everyone knows no. margaret atwood's name if you were trying to elevate two stories or two writers um whose work you know, both, you know, if you really could not decide, it was like, well, we, we can give the, we have this spotlight and what can we do with this spotlight? Let's give it to both of these writers um, that are lesser known. That's a different story. It's still not awesome to make them split the prize money. Um, But Mm -hmm. especially in this case, you're right that the story now is about how, Bernardine Evaristo has to share the Booker Prize with Margaret Atwood. It's not a story about Bernardine Evaristo being the first black woman to win the Booker Prize. And that's what, like, that's what the story should have been. And then we could have the conversation about why has it taken 50 years for the Booker Mm -hmm. to give the prize to a black woman? Um, Like, and I think that 
you know, she, her point is well taken here that she hopes that the honor of being, um, the first and only black woman to win the award doesn't last too long. Like we could have that conversation. Um, and the booker could be maybe taking a look at what their priorities are. I, I hope that they're taking a long look at what their priorities are here, but it's just, um, Sam Leith, who is a, a former booker judge called the decision to split the prize, an epic fail that sets a rotten, rotten precedent. And I heartily agree. I didn't see anyone that wasn't working for a representative of the Booker Foundation saying anything good about this. The rare case online mm-hmm. where there's no hot take to, to the other side. Like, um, I'm going to go buy Girl Woman Other today. I mean, yeah, if this is, I, I don't know what else I can do about it at this point. Um, it sounds know, really interesting. So there's 12 characters, most of them black British women, moving throughout the world in different decades and learning um, how to be each character as a chapter and their chapters overlap. Some of them are very close to each other and some just visit the same theater on the same night or argue with each mm-hmm. other on Twitter. So it's this very, sounds like a kaleidoscopic, wide ranging, yeah. um, polyphonic is one of my favorite words. Um, it's a good you know, word. Multiple voices happening at the same time. So, you know, it's that's a real bummer. And, um, Another one in the column of, boy, it's hard to care about these. It's hard to yeah, care about there's, these. I, there's one really more hard. thing that I just realized I'm mad about, and that's that Margaret Atwood mm. could have declined this award and didn't. Yeah, she could have. I mean, that would have been extremely magnanimous. It's hard It's hard for me to get mad at one of the awardees. This is the Booker's fault. This is not Atwood's fault. But she could have. She could have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just needed to say it. To put in the position to have to decline the Booker Award is that's that's a tough spot. But also, like, that ultimately flows back to the Booker too. But who has more like cultural and political capital than Margaret Atwood does to say like if if she had said it, she could have potentially made an impact here. Of like, this is the first Black woman to win the award she should get the whole spotlight. I don't need 25,000 pounds. Well, as we know, that what is super attuned to the difference of race. Well, no, that's what I mean. Like that's, she, yeah, yeah. If Margaret Atwood were more woke, this could have also gone down differently. Um, If her priorities were different, this could have gone down differently. Like the booker put Atwood and Evaristo in this situation, but that doesn't mean that Atwood couldn't have done something about it. If anyone has the cultural capital to be able to like educate the Booker Prize about a problem, um, it's Margaret Atwood, but she doesn't have the perspective or the priorities to do it. Um, so I'm I'm going to be mad at her now too. Okay, um, <laughs> that's where we uh, are. Fair, I can understand. Um, let's do another sponsor. Okay. God, some of these stories. Do we want to do these? God, these are, these are bad stories this week. That's, I mean, not bad. I mean, they're just, I don't, these are all a, upsetting. Or some of these are upsetting. Let's, which which is, these are the least, nah, I don't know. Where you want to go? You tell me where you want to go. Um, no I good out think here. there's no good, there's no great news um, this week, but I thought it was interesting. The New York Times had a piece yeah. this week um, out addressing it's called do works by men implicated by me Too belong in the classroom. Um, and this was a nice sort of two years later check-in about mm-hmm. what's going on specifically with educators and how educators are grappling with like what to do now with works by writers who have been implicated in me too. And this piece specifically addresses Sherman Alexie and Juno Diaz and talks to educators who have been, you know, who have made various decisions about this, but who have been in the situation essentially of like teaching Juno Diaz's novels and examining, um, examining masculinity through the lens of those novels, but how that shifts after you know the things that he has been accused of. Or um, a high school English teacher on a Navajo reservation in Arizona discussing how important Sherman Alexie's absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian had been to students that she taught and then trying to decide what to do with, do I continue to teach this work? And if I do, do I also provide the students the context of the things that Alexi has been accused of and in some cases has admitted to, or do I not because the book should just stand on its own. Like um, the Mm. whole, what do we do with the art versus the artist question is very tangly just as a reader, but from an educator's perspective, trying to balance those priorities of stories that can make students feel seen, that can change their perspectives, but then how do you acknowledge 
um, the source of those stories, the person who created them, or do you take those books off the syllabus and look for another voice? Um, and this mm-hmm. New York Times piece talks to educators who have made decisions sort of all along the spectrums of possibility. I did think, um, I think this is maybe the first time that I've seen big numbers or that now we're far enough out to have a look at big picture, but it notes that Juno Diaz's book sales dropped by 85% um, following the Me Too stuff, which is meaningful. um, And is, you know, he's been on a lot of syllabi. So I think there's probably a lot of teachers making these changes too. Um, I'm not sure what else there is to say about it other than this is an interesting like now we're far enough into this me too thing that some follow up is happening and yeah. some nuance is coming to the discussion um and these perspectives um there there's a lot of there are a lot of voices to consider here and a lot of tangly questions and we're starting to really get into those and it was interesting to me to see this and to see educators wrestling with it and to be able to hear their reasoning about where they shook out you know it's a fascinating uh, Emma Goldberg wrote the piece so shouts to 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 mm-hmm. her because um, I, I thought it's I hadn't thought about the timing it feels like it hasn't been that as long as it has been frankly so that mm-hmm. some of that was a wake-up call for me but I've got to say that 85 percent number seemed really high I was not if you would have asked yeah. me to give an over under I wasn't going that high for Diaz I thought I thought he had achieved the paperback favorite status which is sort of review and sort of you know kind of the kind of would would be insulated from a new story within the world of books, like it sort of crossed over into just things you see at the bookstore with the Pulitzer Prize sticker on it and some name recognition. And I'm wrong, I guess, um, which I'm not sure what to make about my wrong. My wrongness is not the, the matter, but the fact is that this kind of story um, really affects a contemporary writer's sales is something I don't think we knew yeah, in, we in the didn't. heat of the moment. I don't think we knew. And I don't know if it changes my position on anything. It's just that we now know it, I think, matters to some degree. I'm, I'm still processing it, I have to say. Yeah, I think that's an important point. And it, I think it must mean that it's not just like consumers becoming aware of these stories about Diaz in particular, that 85% is a huge drop. Um, we knew of independent bookstores making statements that they were taking his books off their mm-hmm. shelves, teachers taking them off of the syllabi. But like, you're right, especially the brief wonders life of Oscar Wow had been on paperback favorites tables for like a decade. And for the number to drop this significantly, I hadn't thought about it until you were saying it, but it must mean like Barnes and Noble and other big chains must have quietly made the decision to stop featuring that book in prominent uh, maybe, places. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like I just I don't know that the public story about it was wide was wide reaching enough to generate that kind of drop. Um, like the discoverability of the book must have been, I think, must have been. De- like decreased. It yeah, must that's have- an interesting data point that would be interesting to know that we'll never get is like yeah. the the prominence of placement in a Barnes and Noble. Um, does that did it a did it change and is that a contributing factor? Because um, it also speaks to there was some talk I think when Me Too first started blowing up in publishing, especially about would this actually make any difference? Um, would it would anything change? Well. If the consequences are this severe, even for self-preservation purposes, it might be an inducement to not be such a jerk, um, to not be such a a sleazebag, Um, where there was a moment where these guys clearly thought they could get away with it because the stories wouldn't come out and they could treat women terribly um, without repercussion. And you know what has been proven out is that there is repercussion. It can happen publicly, it can happen quickly, and it can happen systemically. And I guess that's the mm-hmm. thing. Is Because you're right, this piece does have a range of reaction, but it's not such a range that the, the sales loss isn't mitigated horribly uh, or uh, meaningfully. It's still an 85% drop. Um, I, I, and it's easy for you and me, I think, to say, I'm pulling Diaz off my shelf. I'm not reading Diaz anymore. I think the nuance that was meaningful to me in this is that in some situations, you it's a pro. It's not just a pro to say, you know, I'm not talking about that anymore. You, the, right. the consequence is you've got actual students in front of you that could benefit from that particular title. 
forget mm-hmm. about the author for a minute. And the, yeah. and the teacher, the educator, the librarian has to do the work of A, not giving it, finding a replacement if there is one, because as we know, there isn't always the way publishing works, especially as has been, not as many voices that could to fill the gap. You know, these sort of there's just one, but Alexi's probably the saddest example of that. Um, but then if they choose to keep it on, they feel a moral obligation to explain it, which is also a bunch of work that they didn't sign up for to be English teachers too. Mm-hmm. So um, the knock-on effects, I think, are both more complicated and long-lasting than I would have guessed at this particular time. So um, a piece well worth reading beyond what we've said about yeah, it, sure. worth reading on its own its own right. Um, let's see. I think we have to take a take a talk about this story as much as I don't want to. I, one of the more disturbing book-related stories I've come across recently, um, students mm-hmm. at Georgia Southern University burned the books of Cuban-American author on, on a grill following a lecture in which he argued with participants about white privilege and diversity. This is, I'm quoting from the lead on CNN.com. Janine Capucruset, I believe, is how you say her last mm-hmm. name, C-R-U-C-E-T, um, mm-hmm. went to Statesboro, um, to uh, I'm sorry, this is um, a Georgia college to discuss her 2015 novel "Make Your Home Among Strangers," and they were assigned to read it in her first their first year experience. Of course, basically, there was a confrontation um, with one interaction with a student, um, and that led to some of the students going out and taking the books and burning it on the grill. She says, I came here because I was invited and I talked about white privilege because it's a real thing they're actually benefiting from right now, even asking this question. Um, so, and the question, the question was, what makes you believe that it's okay to come to a college campus like this when we are supposed to be promoting diversity on this campus, which is what we're taught? I don't understand what the purpose of this was. And it seems like kind of a benign response for her, but as these things go, sometimes when you tell truth to power or privilege – the um this sort of non newtonian physics right the reaction is not mm-hmm. equal to the 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 action um says she described it as strange and surreal they began shouting um and then some other students were upset about the students being jerks yeah she had to change hotels i, I don't know it just <laughs> sounds like it got ugly right i mean it's ugly yeah, and there's it's, i'm not sure what to say about it other than how strange and disturbing it is yeah, it's I think this is a case where the the response by the person who was upset indicates and illustrates the the need for these kinds of conversations to be happening and the need for authors to be writing these kinds of books and giving these kinds of talks. Like the GSU student newspaper reports that the student accused Capo Crusade of generalizing about, quote, the majority of white people being privileged. And, you know, as we know, like white people who reject the notion that white privilege is a thing fundamentally don't understand that it doesn't mean that your life is easy. It just means that if in the ways in which your life is hard, are not caused by the color of your skin. Um, and that it sounds to me like the student g- did not grasp that concept um, and pointed the pointed their ignorance at this author who was put in the situation of having to give this talk, which like it sounds like this campus needs to have talks about mm-hmm. race and white privilege. Um, I hope that, white academics on this campus are also doing the work of educating their students that this is a real thing. What a, well, just what a scary thing to have happen. I don't know that there's anything to say about it other than like, this is unsurprising um, and terrible. And that she was made to feel so unsafe is inexcusable. Like there's just no excuse for this. It demonstrates that like there's a lot of work still to be done. Um, and that these conversations really are essential and, and need to keep occurring, but we have got to find a way to do this, especially on college campuses in a way that doesn't require writers of color, especially women of color to Mm -hmm. be the ones doing the heavy lifting to teach people that white privilege is a thing. Yeah. It's yeah. I think that's a great point. She says she's been doing a bunch of these visits and nothing like this has occurred in any previous campus visit. So it's, it feels like a one-off, but a meaningful one. I mean, doesn't make it Mm -hmm. any less disturbing that it, it still happened. Um, 
I guess it's good that it's not a, a recurring theme. Is this a disturbed individual? It's hard, it's hard to know. Yeah. But what's interesting, too, is that this student, even the student who wasn't interested in engaging with the ideas at all, still knew the symbolic power of burning the book. And th- that mm-hmm. stuck out to me, too. It's like that's a thing that we just know to be powerful and maybe doesn't even realize how powerful it, it really is. And the, I doubt knows the cultural, <laughs> the cultural weight of the idea of burning a books publicly in the, in the author's presence in a politically charged environment. But um, I had never seen a story like this um, uh, to my yeah, knowledge. Notable. I think that she tweeted after the incident and there are videos on social media that show students gathered around the grill, burning copies of the book and Capo Crusade tweeted, this is where we are America. Um, yeah. And I think that's the, that's the top line here is like this individual instance is horrifying and inexcusable. And this is representative of like, we're not seeing book burnings every day, but we're seeing incendiary interactions mm-hmm. around right. privilege and voice and diversity and fundamental humanity, like who gets to count as a human and who doesn't in various people's eyes um, in this, the political moment right now. And she's yeah. contextualizing it there of like, this is a horrible thing that happened to me, but also this is where we are. And it's not that far below the surface. I mean, I'm not saying anything right. anyone hasn't said, but some, some things that were sublimated, are right there at the surface and didn't take much of an interaction for multiple copies, but from multiple students to show up on a grill and a campus. Um, terrifying stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. God, Lord. Um, <laughs> listen, Ronan Farrow. I mean, let's just do it. Let, we're here. Yeah, we might as well. Might as well do it. You take this one. I took the last one. I got to I got to breathe deeply or something. Okay. So, Ronan Farrow has a new book out called Catch and Kill: Lies, Spies, and a Conspiracy to Protect Predators. Um it documents uh his attempts to report on Harvey Weinstein uh, on uh, sexual assault allegations against Harvey Weinstein and against Donald Trump and then on um different publications refusal to publish those reports uh, and how cultural uh, how publications and sort of cultural mm-hmm. what's I'm missing I'm like so fired up I'm losing words here but basically all of the like cultural systems that have existed to protect prop up support and hide um, allegations against powerful men uh, continued to do so um Earlier this week, Pharaoh tweeted that some Australian book outlets, including Booktopia, Amazon Australia, have caved due to frivolous legal threats um, and banned – he used the word banned the book from being sold. Um, Like outlets choosing not to sell books is not banning or censorship. Um, Ronan Pharaoh should know that – should know better that those words mean specific things. Um, But like – but it's deeply troubling that yeah that book outlets caved to frivolous legal threats by people uh, presumably attempting to protect to continue to protect Weinstein, Trump and the other uh, kinds of powerful men that Ronan Farrow is reporting on. Um strange so that's story. And the strange <laughs> for a couple of reasons. One is I mean basically the loss the threat of lawsuits is Basically, that some of the stuff in there is the story is untrue. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the the an AMI spokesperson, which is the law, law firm, I guess, representing whoever I can't remember the guy's name from the National ex, National Enquirer mm-hmm. guy that's trying to keep uh, it from Dylan saying, Howard. Yeah, narrative is driven by unsubstantiated allegations from questionable sources. <laughs> while these stories may be dramatic, they are completely untrue. And Amazon and Booktopia, like the some of the big retailers have pulled the book for fear of them them being sued i guess yeah that seems that, strange the platform it, being sued right that the Not national the publisher inqu- right it's because the publisher that, isn't pulling the book no it's very strange and this also feels like it's not necessarily a story anymore about trying to protect weinstein and trump like the case against weinstein is already closed functionally um, <laughs> yeah there's you know, no, like, no additional no additional dirt <laughs> be thrown on that grade yeah right um but that 
Dylan Howard, who was, as you said, the former editor in chief of the National Enquirer, like he's about to get outed in a major way or mm-hmm. Pharaoh outs him in a major way in catch and kill for protecting for, for taking efforts to kill stories and protecting Weinstein who is a friend of, of Howard's. And I think this is Howard flailing is maybe the best mm-hmm. word um, right. flailing to try to keep the story from coming out. And he, I, we don't know if he tried to stop publication of the book. We don't know if he threatened Pharaoh's publisher. Um, but if if the publisher is not going to pull the book, then like, what's the next thing you can try? I guess you can try to threaten to sue anyone who sells it um, for distributing <sighs> yeah. the material that you claim um, contains lies about you. It's very like this is just desperate is what it is. Yeah, and also, it, I think it's just desperate. And it shows like a, he's not living, he, Pharaoh, not Pharaoh, um, Howard is not operating in reality here if he thinks mm. that like the sales of Ronan Pharaoh's book are the thing that's going to like help protect his identity or his reputation. Like that ship has already sailed as well. And a great Streisand effect candidate, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Like this book got pulled from Amazon. Wow. What, you know, I, all the quotes that the quotes he's worried about are now appearing in this article that more people right. will read than will probably buy the like it's it's tough. Maybe the law is different in Australia too that the the outlet has some um, exposure in mm. in in libel or in libel cases because I've never heard anything like this. It's yeah, not suing. It. it says they're not suing Little Brown, which is the parent, which is you know Hachette or sorry Hachette mm-hmm. is the parent company. Little Brown is the imprint publishing the book. They haven't been. It says put on notice. It says that, but it hasn't been sued. So you'd think if anyone was going to get the the cease and desist in the lawsuit, they yeah. would get it first. I just don't and, understand how that works. And the other thing that happens, if you sue someone for slander or libel, pardon me, you get to go through discovery. And I'm sure Ronan Farrow <laughs> wouldn't mind the opportunity to depose and subpoena you know, yeah, Howard's text messages and emails. So this is a bit of saber rattling that worked on some – for some – maybe Booktopia and, and Amazon – don't want to deal with it. They're small. They're yeah. smaller versions of their parent companies, and it's it'd be multi million dollar defense case. I totally get that. Like Amazon, actually defend yourself. You've got you've got the money. I don't know anything right. about Booktopia, yeah. which is yeah. I guess the Amazon second largest one. Amazon has time and the money. Yeah, but they definitely caved, and that they're the ones that would be on the hook on a lawsuit is confusing to me. Yeah, but um, let's just say that. Um, this looks it's a terrible look for uh Howard and go read the quotes and you'll yeah, need all you definitely need to know. Yeah, and about I, this I don't guy. know if it's meaningful that Howard is from Australia and maybe that's why he oh, cares maybe. or if the law in Australia is different but also like while we're talking about not operating in reality like this book is out in the US it's out in many other places so these quotes are also already out there like attempting to keep it from being sold in Australia doesn't really prevent Australian readers from having access to the information if they have access to the internet they can read reviews and quotes and like the whole expose really mm. anyway uh, it's just I guess if you're flailing and you're foundering and sinking mm-hmm. any any flail feels like possible progress towards the surface of the water, even though Maybe. you're probably just putting your farther yourself farther under. One more story, just kind of—I gotta end on something I find at least somewhat interesting and good, <laughs> or not actually a disaster. Stephen King's house in Maine is becoming a museum and writers' retreat. Cool. Um, it's this huge Victorian red brick mansion that's described in this Bustle article as Bloodred. It does look like a kind of house a Stephen King horror story would happen in. And it feels like writers going to stay at Stephen King's house is a good setup for a horror novel. But anyway, um, it just just seems really interesting. Um, It had to be rezoned, and the Bangor City Council unanimously confirmed the proposal. Um, It's going to house... The Kings have lived there for decades, but spent more time in other residences due to privacy concerns. It's not a secret where Stephen King's lives. And mm-hmm. also it's going to house the King archives. According to the proposal, there'll be appointments available to scholars who request to study the materials. Um, another home next door, which the Kings have owned since 20, 2004, will hold up to five writers in residence at a time. Stephen King, Stephen King's, I'm not a horror guy, so it's like not one of my people, 
But between giving rights to students to adapt his short stories for a dollar and this kind of stuff, you know, good on you, King. This is cool. Yeah. I, I really like this idea. There's no, there's nothing in, there's nothing wrong with this. I'm into this too, and I want them to do a modern version of like Mary Shelley and Lord Byron hold up in a oh, castle somewhere I like that. Yes. where like yeah. the writers go on retreats and they do the thing of like competing for who can come up with the scariest story during their time at mm. the writer's retreat. Um, and then we get like, or anthologies like an Agatha Christie of, style. Yeah. yeah or like anthologies. Room, Christie, of, the, the, um, wa- the bridge is washed out and there's horror writers and one winds yes. up dead. <laughs> maybe, maybe not with the death, um, but like anthologies well, story, of stories. Not the actual, oh, no, got no, it. I wanted to have fiction. Fiction. Sorry, we're, I'm crossing the street. Yeah, it. yeah. An anthology of like all the short stories that people wrote while they were staying at Stephen King's house on a writer's retreat would be. There's like just that. cool possibilities here, mm-hmm. and I think it's smart for him to be like, you know what? Like everyone knows where I live. This is becoming disruptive. Let me just move and find some privacy, yeah. but we can use this house to do interesting things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, you can check that out. If you're a writer and want to go stay in, I have to admit, I'd be so creeped out. Just the idea of Stephen King's house gives me the willies. That's how much of a, <laughs> a, 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 a wilting violet I really am. <laughs> you don't want to, we're not going to take uh, a retreat there. A little podcast. No. journey. <laughs> no, we're not. Well, not, a bo- not both of us. I'd like to get out of <laughs> this thing alive if I can. <laughs> All right. That's our show. Whew, it was a rough one. Podcast at bookriot.com for email. You can find links to the stories we talked about at bookriot.com slash listen. We'll talk to you guys soon. Have a good one.